Welcome to the Talking Transplant Podcast, organised and sponsored by Takeda. This podcast is only intended for healthcare professionals outside of the USA. All views and opinions expressed are those of the participants only. Hello and welcome everyone to the Talking Transplant Podcast today. My name is Anne-Marie Weissenbacher and I'm a consultant surgeon in the Department of Visceral Transplant and Thoracic Surgery at the Medical University of Innsbruck in Austria. I'm a transplant specialist and I'm the lead of our kidney transplant program. I have a great interest scientifically in organ preservation, kidney and liver presentation, and also I have developed a strong interest over the time in global healthcare. So this is why I am especially excited at this episode, as this episode will focus on sustainable kidney care. Today, I am joined by Dr. Mark Haber, who has particular expertise and insights on this topic. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. I'm a consultant nephrologist from the Royal Free in North London, with a particular interest in transplantation. Uh, but I suppose my um, my reason for being here today is uh, a long-standing interest in sustainability and with the climate crisis, uh, which I think all of us kind of now begin to appreciate the severity of what's coming, there, there, there are implications for our patients, for our staff, and also a kind of um, responsibility for healthcare, which is pretty heavy on, on its own carbon footprint. So there's quite a lot of things that need to happen, quite a lot to discuss in terms of improvements we could make. And and I think quite often a lot of very positive things that can come out of us being forced to, to which I hope we'll cover, that are forced to, to change the way that we practice. Thank you very much, Mark. So you highlighted already what so-called, I think it's these three pillars of sustainability, like it's economic viability, the protection of the environment, and also social equity. So we hope you all enjoy the episode, wherever you are, uh, and will come away having learned more in general about sustainability in healthcare, but in particular the issues related to kidney care. We hope our discussion will help you understand more about the principles and issues in sustainable healthcare and maybe give you some ideas of how we can or how you can implement some of the suggested changes into your daily practice. So, um, Mark, let me ask you, so what is sustainable healthcare for you and why do you think is it so important? Um, well, just... Going back to the bit I mentioned before was that um, the healthcare sectors in most developed countries are responsible for about 5% of the uh, of the carbon footprint of those countries. So we have a pretty massive um, carbon footprint, and that doesn't cover things like plastics and waste and uh, a variety of other environmental impacts as well. So there's a duty of care, a responsibility for institutions to become environmentally more friendly. And as you may well know that in the UK, the NHS was the first major health authority to set a target for net zero. So 2040 for things for, for direct uh, emissions and 2045 for indirect emissions. And I'm, I'm delighted to say that lots and lots of other healthcare uh, organisations have done the same since. So there's the the absolute need for sustainable healthcare. And sustainable healthcare is really, as you've uh, alluded to before, it's the idea of 
providing healthcare in a way that's sustainable in the in the broadest sense. So it doesn't, you know, that it has a net zero effect, but also that it will that is is equitable. That you provide a care that is uh, much more um, uh, accessible to all. That is um, and doesn't have a, a, a huge environmental price. Yes, also working already in transplant, I think it fits so perfect in sustainability, isn't it? So how do the principles of sustainable healthcare apply to transplant care in particular? So I think the, the idea of replacing a poorly functioning organ with a functioning organ, whether it's live donor or deceased donor, is a, a really good example of sustainable healthcare in a way. And just going back to the kind of accessibility bit and your... Uh, and my interest in, in global healthcare, um, there are you know large portions of the global population that don't have access to, for instance, dialysis, um, who will simply perish if they don't have transplantation. But there's there's this huge potential for kind of offering this up as a as a you know an effective treatment. So it it really sounds like as we as you said it you know we would never talk about uh, the best way to recycle of course but uh, it could be misunderstood but um, as you said already um, we need to decrease this this huge carbon footprint and going now so we we let's say we transplanted these organs and so we we it definitely it's important to take care of our kidney patients and the, the, the organs we transplanted so how would you see this as part of sustainable health care how can we improve the kidney and the patient care so i think that's a really again a, a, a super question um i was asked relatively recently what's the you know the best way of reducing the carbon footprint of dialysis Kidney failure is a good example because there is a kind of viable alternative. Um, and the carbon footprint of dialysis or renal patients in general is about 18 times that of other patients in the health sector. Um, and that's largely down to dialysis. And, and, and what are the ways of reducing the carbon footprint of dialysis? Well, it's actually preventing it in the first place. So coming back to your broader question about this, it is a really interesting series of questions for us as a community is, well, how do you make sure that there's open access to transplantation for everyone how do you make sure that there's availability of live donor and deceased donor organs you know is maximized and there's lots and lots to be said about that in terms of patient education selecting the right organs in the right place preventing immunological damage and other recurrent disease and so on and so forth infectious diseases like cmv and so on that you can try and that we're getting better at finding ways of of preventing things that are happening that will shorten the lifespan of the organ and and you're often sometimes you're asking two different things of an organ transplant what you're asking is for someone who's 25 to have a kidney that's going to last for 30 years but if you've got someone who's 68 and diabetic you may not need that you may need something that's going to give them you know good quality of life for a a, a few years um, and that's a very different, again, it's odd talking about sustainability in that sense, but it's a very different equation um, when the focus is really just on quality of life. Um, that coincides very nicely with the idea of of not using up tons of resources because people win by having a good quality of life um, and not being medicalized so much. Yeah, this is something you mentioned now, which is absolutely important. And I think we as, as surgeons and nephrologists together 
um, we often discuss this topic exactly how we, can we offer the best option to our patients. So when by do by doing so, so the kidney care in specific, how can it be more sustainable? So you mentioned already that also lifespan of an organ. Uh, means something different depending the stage the patient is currently in, and of course, even for a twenty-year-old, if you if you want to have to have a kidney forever, I think so. Accepting the fact that we want good function, whether that's for an elderly patient or a young patient who you want the kidney to last for a long time, matching that is really important. So. Um, NHSBT, the organisation that manages transplantation in the UK, has been very good at trying to work out algorithms for what delivers the best match, if you like. So you you know won't be offered a kidney from a 30-year-old if you're 68, for instance. So getting the match right is important. This really goes from every step of the process, as, as you know very well, better than I actually as a surgeon, is the identifying patients who are suitable donors, um, is the approaching the families, um, is the pre-care of the patient who uh, is going to die but is a potential donor. Um, the uh, Getting all those bits right is really critical. Then the handling of the organ so that it doesn't incur further damage because it really is not sustainable to put in a, a very you know badly damaged kidney. Um, and and then there are many other things that you can do to preserve an organ that I think, you know, given that a lot of a significant proportion of transplants are lost because of auto chronic antibody mediated rejection, then the trick is how do you maintain um, the right levels of immunosuppression? How do you avoid people getting infectious diseases that cause problems, nosocomial infections? But also, how do you stop patients? Um, if you can, suddenly stopping taking their tablets and losing a kidney. So I think what I'm trying to say is that there's a huge amount of, I always say this, uh, that our, you know, our surgeons put in a vast amount of effort in the first, the retrieval surgeons and, and, the, and the surgeons who put the organs in, huge amount of attention to detail at the time in the first 24 hours and in the transplant clinic afterwards, we see patients very regularly and, and you know, monitor every creatinine. But we, I think we probably lose something long term in terms of being sure that we're getting the best out of a kidney sometimes. So there's a whole variety of uh, elements there to how you make um, kidney transplantation more sustainable. And I don't, I don't think we're as good at it as we should be yet. Lots of room for improvement. So it has been all over the news and on social media, and uh, we have been in touch with the Cambridge Research Group already about this exciting topic. So maybe you read it there as well, Mark. Um, the Cambridge researchers working on normothermic kidney preservation were also able to change the blood group. So they could they haven't transplanted these kidneys yet, but they could change the blood group B kidney to a blood group O kidney. So this would be also perfect as we know that organ donor shortage and not enough life donors and so on is also kind of a bit of a natural foe of being sustainable because we simply do not have enough organ. How do you think, how quickly could this be implemented also in the NHS, NHSBD, do you see this as an important um, game-changing um, scientific effort, or, or how and how do you want to consent patients about this? So there are lots of 
things here, as you know, you know, this sort of holy grail has been to have uh, kidneys you can take off the shelves and uh, and and use, and and if you can clearly, if you can change the blood group of a, a kidney to a universal donor, then that's going to be rather splendid because you can have you know greater uh, greater access. I suppose I think the 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 slight problem with changing the blood group bit is that there's a huge variation in live donor transplantation throughout Europe, for instance, there's from in, in terms of um, live donors per million. And there's a very big variation in the number of disease donor transplants per million. So in a way, before getting to that point, I guess the question is, is there a lot more we could be doing to increase the number of organs in the first place? Because um, if you take a blood group O from a blood group O patient, there's still no more organs available. I think all of this, I mean, there's been so much good science in, in transplantation and it's it's really genuinely very exciting. But I don't think we've got access to transplantation in the first place, right? And we know that with kidney transplantation, I can't speak for other organs, but, you know, getting in early um, prolongs the survival of the graft and the patient. So preemptive transplantation is good. And again, the variation with that is very wide. And in this country, you know, a large study not that long ago showed that if you come from a lower socioeconomic group, your chance of getting on the transplant list uh, is is less or it's later. Thank you very much, Mark, um, on elaborating on this now. So when we talk about sustainable and kidney care, then it's not just about the long-term outcome. And, you know, when we think about chronic allograft dysfunction and chronic rejection itself, but we know that also infectious disease, and you have also a huge expertise in this, is one of our um, major burdens we we are fighting against because we need the immunosuppression, but it's not always, as we know, more is not always better. So how do you see here an improvement in sustainability uh, when we want to address the infection, um, the infections after transplantation? Yeah, no, again, I think that's a really good question. This was really brought home to me a few years ago when I was talking about vaccination for CMV and a multi-organ transplanter said that sometimes if they're doing multi-organ transplants and they're offered a CMV positive donor to a CMV negative recipient, they won't take them because they know ultimately the patient will probably end up dying of CMV because they won't be able to control it eventually or it'll be such a major problem. And in, and in bowel transplants, CMV for instance, can be you know a major problem, and the, uh, it's clearly much more difficult for organs in which you have to use a lot more immunosuppression. Getting that balance right between not having acute or chronic rejection and infection is difficult. So, um, any prevention, prophylaxis, treatment that's uh, uh, and monitoring is clearly very very important. Thank you very much. So um, you mentioned um, previously patient education, patient education, and also patient information. I think it's it's of utmost utmost importance to to get the information out there and want to have our patients uh, being the best way looked after. Also, the more the more they know, uh, the better they will do. Do you think that? Digital technologies can contribute to sustainable peritransplant and post-transplant care. So um, I think there are several elements to that. The um, 
One element to it is can you use technology to, for instance, reduce the amount of travel that people have to do? So we used to bring our kidney transplants back three times a week um, to monitor them in the, in the early stages of transplants. We've moved twice a week and without any obvious adverse outcome. So can you use local monitoring and can you use uh, near patient testing, for instance, to improve patient care and avoid that sort of um, issue. For instance, there's a, a French study, a multinational study at the moment, looking at um, a, an algorithm. Really, it's not so much AI, but as uh, but is a is a way of predicting outcome for transplants when you put them in. Uh, and that's a, an exciting piece of research to say, well, can you identify when the kidney might be distressed and you're doing something about it? So that's key. There's near patient testing. Um, which means it can be a lot less travel and you can make it an earlier uh, indication of of a problem. Uh, so that's uh, lots of uh, apps involved in finger brick tests and, and stuff in development. So that's all very important. And I think there are there's quite a lot one could do with, uh, as I say, I'm not sure I would call it AI, but but algorithms that would say this is showing a signal and it's you know, repeatedly shown that unfortunately, often these are better than doctors at picking up um, adverse changes early. And, and back to your your question about um, your point about education. So, I think lots of things that that might help with that. The education the thing is 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 important and difficult in the sense that when we tried to look at whether compliance was related to um, socioeconomic background or education or so on and so forth, we found that poor compliance didn't correlate with ethnicity or socioeconomic background but um, uh, at all. But what became apparent was that people's health literacy was, was often much lower than the doctors thought it was, that people, uh, patients often understand quite a lot less than we think uh, in the way that we explain it. And um, and how one develops a dialogue with patients so that it's a conversation of equals so that they are able to see that the gain of looking after an organ um, uh, and that we're there to support them when things go wrong in their life is very, very important. That's not an IT question. I don't know how you build that into IT, but I think you can give people questions and examples and and ask them what would happen if a b or c and that may be a much simpler way of people getting to understand um uh, the risks do you think the pandemic has helped us to to think a bit more sustainable as i think we had to um use or apply remote monitoring so how do you see this if we see something positive or you know if as far as we can see something positive about the virus but do you think it helped uh, yes I, I think there are several things that came out of it i mean clearly an utterly miserable experience for for a great many patients many of whom were i think traumatized by having to isolate in bubbles for a long time i think a sort of general acceptance that vaccinations are good and protective as you know on through in the end. It has kick-started virtual clinics and that's generally speaking been very good. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of virtual clinics have kicked off and in the NHS the idea is that going forward from the from the pandemic that 25 to 30 percent of 
of clinics, of follow-up clinics, will be um, will be virtual. So that will that will be built into that, and that has a, a really major carbon footprint element to it. So about four percent of the NHS um, carbon footprint relates to patient travel, um, and about twenty-three kilograms per clinic visit. So that's that's quite a lot, um, and it's you know better for patients generally speaking if they don't need to come and sit in a clinic for an hour and a half before they're seen they can be at home and working from home so there's a whole variety of things in, in which this may help um they can be looking after their children rather than having to have childcare and so on for, for an appointment so i think those things are really good i think the other thing that was fantastic about the pandemic was a sense that a lot of the barriers and conservative thinking that we all tend to adopt and particularly in institutions were suddenly questioned so all i'm trying to say with this is that it's it's actually given us the permission to look at things with fresh eyes and what's limiting us in a way is our imagination we we have to do lots and lots of things make lots and lots of changes because of climate change we have to build in sustainability so if our patients can't get to clinic because there's a flood we have to work out what to do about that um but there's um at least the covid pandemic shows that we can do it however much we may be settling back into our old ways again yeah yeah thank you very much mark so so many interesting aspects and i think um there is a lot to do from all of us, um, from all sides. So it was really great to have you today uh, as our guest in Talking Transplant Podcast. What do you think, or what are for you the most important details you would like our listeners to remember? Or what do you want them, what's your wish that they will do after listening to this podcast? So do you have any wishes or maybe important messages for us in addition? I think there are several things. So, I, so if I'm going to be blunt about it, I would say that national, international um, management of climate crisis has been execrable, um, and that is, is it is down to institutions and individuals to play their part, and there's a huge imperative to do this. So, I suppose in reverse order, there are lots of things that we can do as an individual. And those aren't difficult to find, the sort of things that we can do on an individual level to reduce our carbon footprint. And then we need to, we're the ones with the college education, the healthcare background, the science background. So we're the ones who should be uh, lobbying and showing by example um, and getting our institutions to make the changes that we can. In, 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 the, in the broadest sense, I think I would ask everyone who's listening, who's involved in transplantation is to say, how can we facilitate transplants how can we make them last much longer can we go through the whole process and how can we think about making each aspect of what we do more sustainable it is a it is a it is a huge topic there is a no end of things to do but what's really really nice about this is i've had hundreds of conversations with people all over the globe who are interested in doing thus people sharing ideas like they did in covid when someone's got a good idea um, we can all cut and paste that so i think i would reach out to other people who are doing it always ask the question about our practice and whether we can make it greener and more sustainable and can we improve patient care with that and potentially save money and the answer is yes quite often that was a long answer but you get the general yeah, idea 
It was definitely a, a great answer. Thank you very much, Mark. And I'm personally now even more interested in sustainable healthcare. So when myself and, of course, most importantly, our listeners want to find out more about sustainable healthcare and also particular for kidney transplants, where can they find some information? Where do they need to look it up? It's a good question, and it's at an early stage. There are um, institutions in in most countries that are looking at sustainable healthcare. The Centre for Sustainable Healthcare in the UK is a really good resource that's been around for quite a while, and and I would have, recommend having a look at their website. In nephrology, there's um, UK Kidney Association has its own sustainable um, kidney working groups, um, but also there's a uh, we're trying to form a a global version of this and in your institutions ask at a very senior level ask your chief executive you know who's in charge of sustainability can i talk to them uh, and and if you can't find someone in your institution ask your chief executive why there isn't someone doing that but the more you get into this the more you find other people who are doing exciting stuff and it's really very rewarding i mean it's as i say it's a bit like covid because you find people with really great ideas lots of imagination uh, uh, and I think the only way I can really approach climate emergency is to say, well, is there positive stuff I can do? I think my, my take-home message is be absolutely positive because it's quite fun um, making changes. Thank you very much, Mark, for your inspiring, stimulating and also very enlightening answers. So I learned a lot during this podcast. And for me, definitely the major takeaways are we can do much more better if this is about thinking about dialysis, becoming more efficient in the kidney aftercare and also to put much more effort into patient education to get the information out there we want to have, also to educate our colleagues and to invest a lot of time to getting the right organs into the right patient, so becoming more efficient and also invest maybe a little bit more in personalized medicine. I also want to thank all the listeners for taking the time to learn about sustainable kidney care with us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take the time to leave a review and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the Talking Transplant program. Thank you again and goodbye.